things happen to good people, it really confuses us. It just doesn't seem right for bad things to happen to good people. And the same is true of churches. In a good church, one that is growing in faith and love finds itself afflicted and persecuted. It doesn't make sense. Especially when the attacks come from people who claim to know and love God and from the community in which the church is seeking to minister. And that is what was happening in Thessalonica. The young church was under attack. And it confused them. It was even causing some in the church to question their faith. Now, since the church had been formed before the Gospels were written, they may not have known that Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or that he told his disciples, If the world hates you, you know it has hated me before you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they would also persecute you. They may not have heard that from Jesus. But in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul had written, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. Paul had told them what to expect. But still, when it happened, it caused a crisis of faith. When the hard times arrived, they began questioning what they had been taught. And they even started believing that the hard times they were experiencing proved they had missed out on the second coming of Christ. They had forgotten that Paul had told them things were going to get much worse before they would get better. And that a period of apostasy, of falling away from the faith, would precede the second coming. They had forgotten the Paul had told them of the coming of the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, who would be able to convince the masses he could do for them what God could not or would not do. And that people would accept his claims of divinity and make him their God. Now things had gotten bad in Thessalonica, but not that bad. Lawlessness was indeed at work in Thessalonica, but the man of lawlessness had not yet made his appearance. We pick up our study in the second chapter of Second Thessalonians, 
verses 6 and the first part of 7. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, for the moment, we're going to skip over the comment about the man of lawlessness being restrained. We'll go back and look at that in detail when we finish verse 7. For now, we'll simply focus on the mystery of lawlessness, or what the NIV calls the secret power of lawlessness. And indeed, there is a mystery to lawlessness, something hidden, something we don't discern on our own. You can even say there's a secret power behind it. And we did not understand the source of lawlessness until we were told of Satan and his work. The mystery has been made known to us. We understand who's behind lawlessness. And then in 1 John 3, 4, lawlessness is defined for us. That's an unusual word, lawlessness. What does it mean? John says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is Lawlessness. If you break a law, you sin. And if you make sin your practice, you practice lawlessness. You think yourself above the law. Now, the personification of lawlessness, the physical representative of the spiritual power behind all sin, hadn't made an appearance in Thessalonica. But men and women were indeed living lawless lives. And the effect of habitual repentant sin was being felt by the church. Things were tough in Thessalonica. They were in fact suffering. But as Paul had already noted, their suffering was a plain indication that they were living lives worthy of the kingdom of God. If they hadn't been living lives that contrasted with the lives of those around them, no one would have given them a second thought, much less persecuted them. But by living lives that honored Christ, they were plunged into spiritual warfare with the power behind everything that's against Christ, everything that is anti-Christ. As we noted last week, John made it clear in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. The personification of lawlessness, the Antichrist, that Paul had told the Thessalonians would come before the second coming, hadn't yet appeared in Thessalonica. But many antichrists had appeared. So they were indeed living in the last days, the last hour, the last period of history. And while we don't know all that Paul had told the Thessalonians to expect, there's no reason to believe he didn't tell them that he would later write in 2 Timothy 3, 1-4, 
about the last days. He says, but realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. In the last days, things are tough. The Thessalonians should have expected difficult times. And so should we. The mystery of lawlessness was already at work, and the powers behind lawlessness were at work. The Christians in Thessalonica were experiencing the spiritual warfare Paul would speak of in Ephesians 6. They were struggling against the rulers, against the powers, against the real forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. What they were not struggling against, however, was the ultimate expression of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness. Because for the time being... He was being restrained. Pick up that last part of verse 7. He said, it says, Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Paul assured the Thessalonians that the man of lawlessness had not appeared because something was restraining him. Holding him back. Someone or something was restraining the man of lawlessness. Someone or something was keeping the lid on lawlessness. Now, those who believe the church will be raptured, taken to heaven a thousand years before Christ returns to draw history to a close, generally suggest It's the Holy Spirit inhabiting the lives of believers that is restraining lawlessness today. And that when all spirit-filled believers are taken from the world, the man of lawlessness will have his day. But since I reject that premillennial scenario, I have to identify something else as the restraining power that is currently keeping lawlessness in check. And I and many others believe that such a restraining power is easy to identify. What is it that restrains lawlessness? Quite simply, it's the enforcement of laws. In Paul's day, it was the power of Rome, something Paul referred to as both a what and a he, if you read that carefully. In verse 6, he speaks of what restrains, which could be the Roman government itself. And in verse 7, he speaks of he who restrains, which could refer to the emperor himself. 
Paul knew very well had been telling the Thessalonians that it was the power of Rome that kept the man of lawlessness from taking center stage in their day. But that someday, that restraining power would be gone. Now, he didn't actually spell out the demise of Rome because to do so would have been seditious. But they knew what he was talking about. He was simply reminding them of something he had already told them, that they should expect hard times, but they shouldn't despair. That in the face of adversity, they shouldn't think they had been abandoned. That Christ had returned and they somehow missed it and been left behind. God was in control. And for the time being, he assured them the legal structures that God had put in place would keep things at least manageable. Now, even secular governments are more sacred than they think. And that's why Paul admonishes us in Romans 13, 1-4 to be subject to civil authorities. He writes, Let every person be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. As long as governments function as God has ordained, lawlessness will be kept in check. And the man of lawlessness, the personification of lawlessness, will be restrained. But when anarchy reigns, when the rule of law is removed, the man of lawlessness is turned loose. He can then exercise absolute authority. He can exalt himself as God, and there will be nothing to stop him. Paul assured the Thessalonians that that had not yet happened. And since he had told them Christ would return, wouldn't return, until it did, it should have been obvious to them that they had not been left behind. But someday, that which restrains lawlessness will be taken out of the way, and the lawlessness one will be revealed. Continuing in the second chapter, 8 through 10. And when that lawlessness one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming, that is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, 
because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. At some point in history, an appearance of the man of lawlessness will trigger the second coming. Now, since John made it clear that many antichrists have already appeared, we're not waiting for the first one. Just the last one. And we won't know we're facing the last one until Christ returns to deal with him. Well, we don't know what the last one is until it's over. You should drive me crazy. They would say, if you want to plant grass seed, plant it on the last snow of the season. <laughs> Duh! <laughs> the man of lawlessness has appeared many times. But the last time, he'll trigger the second coming. Many antichrists Many men of lawlessness have already exalted themselves and many people have followed after them. We are told that Christ will return after a man of lawlessness is revealed. But we really haven't been told how to identify him. We aren't even told he will be the biggest or the baddest man of lawlessness to ever appear. Nor are we told that the entire world will be brought under his spell, only that some will be deceived by him. And this has happened many times throughout history. The one Paul had told the Thessalonians about hadn't yet been revealed, but there's no reason to assume none have appeared on the scene since then. Okay? And while the final Antichrist will come in accordance with the activity of Satan, with miraculous powers, performing signs and wonders, that too has happened before. In fact, Jesus warned us not to think such wonders are a sign of his appearance. In Matthew 24, 23 through 27, we read, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe them. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. If therefore they say to you, Behold, he's in the wilderness, do not be faith. Or, Behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus warned us of false Christ. And false Christs are anti-Christ. There's been a lot of them. And Satan uses them all to accomplish his purposes. Through great signs and wonders, as well as more subtle forms of deception, he tries to mislead even the elect. And he certainly deceives those who have not received the truth, who have not embraced the love and forgiveness of God. Jesus warned us about false Christs and false prophets. And Paul told the Thessalonians not to be deceived into thinking Christ had returned. When he appears 
everyone will know it. And when he appears, the final man of lawlessness, the final imposter, will be destroyed. And notice that there's no mention of a final apocalyptic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. Christ will simply speak the word. He will slay the man of lawlessness with the breath of his mouth and it will be over. In the Revelation, John saw it like this. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. <laughs> and the beast was seized. And within the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. The forces of evil will assemble for war. But there will be no war. Christ will simply speak the word. They will be seized and thrown into a lake of fire. At his word, the final personification of evil and lawlessness will be gone. And lawlessness itself will be judged. Verses 11 and 12. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. There is a reason those who are deceived by the Antichrist are deceived. They don't want to believe the truth. They take pleasure in sin and lawlessness and don't want to give it up. So God lets them believe a lie and He will someday condemn them for doing so. Jesus referred to them as tares, as weeds in God's field, as sons of the evil one. And he spoke of their judgment in Matthew 13, 40-42. Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and he will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not only will the man of lawlessness be judged at the second coming, so will all who have lived lawless lives. All who have been deceived into thinking they can do whatever they want and still make it to heaven when they die. Take a survey sometime. Ask your friends if they think they'll go to heaven. I dare say the vast majority said, well, yeah. Don't we all? There are even books being written by preachers who ought to know better. You say the same thing. It doesn't happen that way. 
doesn't happen that way. And Jesus made that clear with Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, we read, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Claiming to be a Christian, even working in the church, is not enough to assure you a place in the kingdom of heaven. If you practice lawlessness, you are out. Now, I didn't say if you sin, you're out. If you practice lawlessness, if that's the pattern of your life, you're out. The church in Thessalonica was perplexed by the hardships they were facing. They were dealing with an unexpected degree of lawlessness and were confused by it. They hadn't listened carefully to what Paul had told them. They had let the unpleasant and difficult things he had said slip from their mind. So when tough times came, they were shocked. Their expectations about life in the kingdom weren't being met, and their lack of understanding made them easy pickings for those who would deceive them, those who would teach them things that are not true. So Paul reminded them of what he had taught them and what was obvious. Now, this is a hard teaching. And I, I feel sorry for our guests who are here for the first time. <laughs> Every passage we deal with is not like this. We deal with the totality of God's Word. And when faced with one that's hard to understand and one that's confusing and one that gets mistaught all the time, we can't jump over it. We've got to deal with it. I pray that you haven't shut me out. Not just the guests, everyone. This is tough. We don't have to think about these things. It's confusing. I can see somebody going, what in the world is he talking about? Why is he so, so, so adamant about what he's saying? There's a lot of confusion out there. Don't just blow it off. Search it out. Now, I have no guarantee that my take on this is absolutely right. And I'm sure at least one person here today would agree with that statement. Amen, Brian? I thought so. Okay. We're still brothers, okay? We've disagreed for 20 years. And I'm sure we'll disagree until the Lord comes back, and I'll be proven right. <laughs> Stop. All right, but so is the pulpit. <laughs> but these teachings are important because we get so confused. We don't understand sin. We don't understand lawlessness. And we hear stories about the Antichrist and we hear stories about this big, huge battle and we get scared and we don't know what's going on and yada, yada. I think it's important that we sort through that carefully. Now, Paul had just taught the Thessalonians months 
before the confusion set in. They've forgotten it that quickly. And part of the reason was that they weren't really listening because some of the things he was saying wasn't comfortable. And so I said, no, just we'll hear the good stuff. We all have a chance to do that. We hear the good stuff and we just kind of shut down when the bad stuff comes. Or the stuff that confuses us. And we say, here's my head, I can't think about it. Think about it. Okay? Again, I'm not able to guarantee my understanding is correct. I have prayed, I have studied, I have focused on this for years. And I gave you the new understandings as I was preparing for these past two sermons that really excited me. I said, yes, 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 that makes sense to me. It may not make sense to you, but it makes sense to me. I just want you to be in the Word and make sense of it. When you're faced with a hard passage, don't just blow it off. I mean, if you just sit down cold and read Second Thessalonians, you're going to scratch your head and go, what in the world is he talking about? Okay? But don't leave it there. This is God's Word. Paul is an apostle writing to us to prepare us to face life. If we don't know these things, stuff's going to happen that's going to blow us away. And we're going to go, I don't get it. Well, you don't get it because you haven't got it. So get it. How's that? Okay? I'll say more in my class back there. I'm sure. But I better stop now. This is important stuff. It may seem a little out there. It's important stuff. Paul wanted the people in Thessalonica to understand. He wanted to remember what he had told them. And so he reminded them of what he had said. And some things that should have been obvious to them. Obviously, lawlessness was at work. They were feeling the effects of lawlessness. But it may not have been apparent to them that lawlessness was actually being restrained. There was a lid on it. You know, when facing the tough times, we think it's the worst possible scenario. We need to be reminded of someone keeping it under restraint. Okay? So he reminded them of something they'd forgotten. Things weren't yet as bad as he had told them they would be. But, he said, someday lawlessness would take center stage and anarchy would reign. And during one of those periods, Jesus will return. Bringing judgment against sin and lawlessness. The final man of lawlessness will be slain by the breath of his mouth and those who have refused to believe the truth will be cut off from him for all eternity. Things are obviously not yet right. But someday they will be. Until then, we trust in his word and we obey our Lord. And we make certain we are taking pleasure in him and not in wickedness. Let's commit ourselves to trusting and obeying.